0: Without mastermind or master plan, Pontiac's war unfolded with cruel logic and clear purpose. Unsupported by European powers, Native American forces, often intertribal in composition, attacked imperial armies and colonial settlers from Ontario and New York to Arkansas, from Wisconsin to South Carolina. Though there was no single Indian side, And though the more massively organized Britons were riven by provincial and imperial jealousies, it is possible without denying the divisions to gain a sense of deliberation in the chaotic events of 1763. Pontiac and his allies left no written record of their strategy, but with flintlocks they inscribed their intentions both into the British fortifications studying their homelands and into the social landscape of the Middle Atlantic backcountry. Viewed analytically from the distance that time provides, their deadly assaults coalesce into a clear picture. Great Lakes and Ohio Valley Indians sought above all to drive British troops back across the Alleghenies. Their strategy, as it rapidly evolved, was to take what trans-Appalachian forts they could, to cut the communications to the forts they could not take, to denude the countryside surrounding the communications they could not cut, and to intimidate those settlers that they could not kill or capture into leaving and avoiding the Trans-Appalachian West. They sought, too, to impress their prowess and fidelity upon the French garrisons remaining in the Illinois country in an effort to draw them as allies into the war. Gregory Evans Dowd, War Under Heaven, Pontiac, the Indian Nations, and the British Empire. We know very little of the man whose name is forever affixed to the conflagration that swept the British Empire's North American frontier in 1763. For the British, Pontiac, the Odawa war leader and apparent chief conspirator in the insurgency against their rule, must have seemed to have sprung like some malevolent spirit out of the forests of the Great Lakes region. Pontiac is believed to be half Odawa and half Chippewa, both peoples being of the ethnically and linguistically connected culture of the Anishinaabeg of the Great Lakes. The fact that he was a prominent leader of the Odawa by the 1760s would lend itself to the belief that he must have been a capable and successful war leader. The Odawa and the French were very close allies in a mutually dependent relationship built around the fur trade and mutual military assistance in maintaining it. Pontiac may have accompanied the half-French, half-Odawa ensign Charles Langlade when he destroyed a rebellious Miami village at Piccawillany in 1752. The Miami of the Ohio country, under the leadership of Chief Mumesquia, also known as Old Britain, had sort of drifted into the orbit of British traders, and Langlade made him pay a very heavy price for it a joint French and Indian expedition smashed the village, which was located in what's now west-central Ohio. They took a captive, then they executed him, and they boiled him in a pot and ate him in front of his family. Now that's an extremely gruesome way to put down an economic rebellion, but that's the way things rolled in the interior of North America in the middle part of the 18th century. Some historians and historical storytellers, like Alan W. Eckert, assume that Pontiac was there and that he fought with the French when they destroyed General Edward Braddock's command at the Battle of Monongahela in 1755. They're most likely right, but we just don't know for sure. There's just not much of a record of Pontiac before Major Robert Rogers, of Rogers Rangers fame, ran into him on his expedition to take control of Fort Detroit in the fall of 1761, which was after the British had captured Quebec and Montreal and and effectively won the French and Indian War in North America. Rogers' depiction lends Pontiac a kind of woodland majesty that lined up with a British fetish for Indian kings, Rogers, who would write a play for the London stage about Pontiac, knew perfectly well that there were no Indian kings, and that Pontiac certainly was not one, but he was providing a trope that met the expectations of his audience. And with that in mind, his description of the Odawa leader is striking, vivid, and probably pretty accurate. Rogers wrote that Pontiac puts on an air of majesty and princely grandeur and is greatly honored and revered by his subjects. He said that Pontiac had shown great strength of judgment and a thirst after knowledge. He endeavored to inform himself of our military order and discipline. He often intimated to me that he could be content to reign in his country in submission to the King of Great Britain and was willing to pay him such annual acknowledgement as he was able in furs and to call him his uncle. He was curious to know our methods of manufacturing cloth, iron, etc., and expressed a great desire to see England, and offered me a part of his country if I would conduct him there. He assured me that he was inclined to live peaceably with the English while they used him as he deserved, and to encourage their settling in his country, but intimated that if they treated him with neglect, he would shut up the way and exclude them from it. In short, his whole conversation sufficiently indicated that he was far from considering himself a conquered prince, and that he expected to be treated with the respect and honor due to a king or emperor by all who came into his country and treated with him. By the spring of 1763, as we explored in the introductory episode to this series, Pontiac knew that the British were not going to treat him or his people with respect or honor, And he was ready to go to war. He actually wasn't the first to start thinking along these lines. As early as 1761, the Western Seneca chiefs, Gayasuda and Tehayadoras, were circulating wampum belts and agitating against the English. Conditions weren't quite ripe yet, but by 1763 they were. And when trouble started, it escalated and spread so quickly that observers and many historians since have assumed it must have been a coordinated conspiracy. And 19th century historians in particular assigned Pontiac a role as a kind of red Napoleon commanding his dusky legions. And that's just not accurate. No one commanded this loose coalition of Native Americans that rose against the British, but Pontiac did wields significant influence, and he led a major force of more than 400 Odawa and and others in their assault on the key British military installation at Fort Detroit. Pontiac's war can said to have started on May 6, 1763, with an attack on a small surveying party that had gone down the St. Clair River from Fort Detroit. The Indians killed Sir Robert Davers, who was a young British aristocrat, um, uh, a baronet, uh, who had a a mystic bent and a fascination with with Native America. Uh, They also captured a young civilian trader's assistant named John Rutherford, who would write a very compelling memoir of his captivity. The garrison at Fort Detroit did not know about this attack. The garrison was small. All of these garrisons were very small. And uh, even at the, the main installation there in Detroit, the garrison was only about 120 soldiers, and there were probably about 20 traders. And Pontiac had them outnumbered probably more than three to one. The Indians could have overwhelmed the fort, but not without taking unacceptable casualties. And Pontiac was determined to take Detroit By subterfuge. On May 7th, Pontiac entered the fort with about 60 men armed with weapons hidden under blankets. And the plan was for Pontiac to give a speech to post-commandant Major Henry Gladwin while holding up a wampum belt. And when Pontiac flipped the war belt over, the Odawa were to attack and kill the British soldiers in the fort while huron and potawatomi forces surrounded the fort to capture the settlers that lived outside it and to intercept any british reinforcements that tried to make it to the fort but gladwin had been tipped off and by whom remains a, a historical mystery and uh, and he never really let on and encouraged the indians to think that it was one of their number which strikes me as as kind of a psychological operation, was most likely actually one of the the French inhabitants in Detroit um, who uh, was fearful of the the consequences of allowing the British garrison to be destroyed. At any rate, Gladman had been tipped off and had his garrison on alert, on parade, and, and fully armed. And Pontiac was very taken aback by this and realized that the subterfuge had failed. And so the Ottawa warriors left the fort pretty disconcerted. Pontiac tried one more time to persuade Gladwin to let him into the fort, but Gladwin wisely kept his gates closed and made it clear that 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 was not going to happen. At that point, We're talking May 9th of uh, 1763. Pontiac turned his warriors loose to capture and kill some of the British settlers living around the fort, and uh, the warriors began to fire on the fort's bastions. And what would become the siege of Fort Detroit had begun. Now we're going to step away for a while for the rest of this episode. From that siege and look at the action at other posts around the Great Lakes and down into the Illinois country. Most of these posts were very small, more like trading posts than forts, and they were garrisoned by mere handfuls of men a dozen, sometimes two dozen soldiers. From mid May into June, they fell one after the other Fort Sandusky, Fort St. Joseph, Fort Miami. Fort Wantaton, Fort Michilimackinac, Fort Lebane, Fort Venago. Several hundred British soldiers and traders were killed in this opening month of the war, and their supplies, particularly vital supplies of gunpowder, were seized and distributed to fuel what became a very widespread Indian insurgency. And we'll look in depth at a couple of these captures which illustrate the skill and the determination and the effectiveness of of these insurgents. It's interesting to note that, that the insurgents made it very clear why they'd gone to war. In War Under Heaven, Dowd writes, Even as warriors stormed outposts and killed captive soldiers, some found it necessary to explain to the British the reasons that induced them. At Venango, it was later reported they forced the officer to write on paper those reasons, among which was this. Whenever they had complained about the price of powder, they were ill-treated and never redressed. When the officer put the pen down, they killed him. Now, Dow doesn't go into the gruesome details, but the truth of the matter is that uh, he wasn't just killed outright, he was uh, reportedly tortured to death, which became a common feature of Pontiac's war. Now, Fort Miami, in what is now uh, northeastern Indiana, was taken on May 27th. Now, Fort Miami had a garrison of just 15 men, And it was commanded by a former member of Rogers Rangers named, uh, Lieutenant, or I'm sorry, uh, Ensign Robert Holmes. He had been a Lieutenant in Rogers Rangers and had, uh, had served honorably and well during the French and Indian war. So he was an experienced man. Unfortunately for Holmes, though, he had taken an Indian mistress and, uh, this mistress agreed to betray him to the insurgents, which indicates to me that this was a pretty well-planned uh, operation, maybe uh, days or weeks in the planning. So on May 27th, this Indian mistress asked Holmes to come out of the fort and, uh, and go to a cabin about 300 yards away to bleed a sick Indian woman, which was a very common and uh, usually not very beneficial 18th century medical practice. And uh, as he approached his cabin, two shots were fired and Holmes was killed. Uh, His sergeant in the fort heard the musket fire and being a good soldier ran to the sound of the guns but that proved to be a mistake because the Indians grabbed him. The remaining eleven soldiers in the garrison closed the gates and and tried to hide in the fort um, the uh The Indians brought up a a captured traitor and told trader that is not traitor um and uh told him to tell the soldiers in the in The fort that uh, if they surrendered they would not be killed Um, but if they didn't that they they would be all slaughtered and after talking about it the garrison agreed to give themselves up Um, four of the soldiers were taken to Detroit, to Pontiac and uh, no one knows exactly what happened to the rest of them. So that was the stratagem by which Fort Miami fell. The most famous Taking of a post during Pontiac's war occurred at uh, Fort Michigan, Mackinac, which lies on the straits between Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. And uh, this is a big, important fur trading post, and, and it had a larger garrison than any of the others except for Detroit, but it was only about 35 soldiers and three officers. And on June Second, a group of, of mostly Chippewa with some Sauk and, uh, and Odawa um, along with them developed a, a stratagem that uh, allowed them to get into the fort and take it. Now we have to bear in mind that communications were, were very slow um, and arduous, and uh, Fort Michilimackinac lay about 400 miles to the north of Detroit. And the garrison there under Colonel George Etherington had no idea that Fort Detroit was under siege. So when the Indians proposed to have a, uh, a game of Bagataway, which is uh, a, a form of lacrosse, uh, on the plain in front of the, the fort and asked the fort's garrison to watch, uh, they didn't Particularly suspect anything. There had been some, some trouble and some discord, but uh, they had no indication that war was upon them. So this seemed like a, a friendly invitation to watch what was a uh, pretty spectacular spectator sport. Um, Bagataway was a fast and, and violent game. Um, for reasons that are kind of hard to fathom in retrospect, the soldiers didn't notice that many of the Indian women were wearing blankets. Uh, this is June, and it was warm, um, and, uh, and they weren't suitably clothed for the conditions. But the men were stripped down to play, um, so the women wore these blankets to conceal weapons. And they were mostly melee weapons, clubs, tomahawks, knives, um, and there may have been some, some trade muskets that were sawed down. But uh, at a certain point in the game, the, uh, the lacrosse ball went flying through the air and, and through the gate and into the fort's compound. And the players went running after it. And as they ran by the women, the women threw off their blankets and handed the warriors their weapons. And these Indians uh, fell upon the garrison and a uh, pretty grim slaughter commenced. A British trader named Alexander Henry left an account of what happened. I heard an Indian war cry and a noise of general confusion. Going instantly to my window, I saw a crowd of Indians within the fort furiously cutting down and scalping every Englishman they found. I had in the room which I was a fowling piece loaded with swan shot. This I immediately seized and held it for a few minutes, waiting to hear the drum beat to arms. In this dreadful interval, I saw several of my countrymen fall, and more than one struggling between the knees of an Indian who, holding him in in this manner, scalped him while yet living." Another trader named Henry Bostwick recalled, I saw a soldier running toward the house for shelter and the Indians after him, but as soon as he came near the door, they, the French inhabitants, that is, shut it against him, which gave the Indians time to strike him with hatchet. Upon receiving the blow, he fell forward with so much force against the door that he broke it open through an aperture which afforded me a view of the area of the fort I beheld, in shapes the foulest and most terrible, the ferocious triumphs of barbarian conquerors. The dead were scalped and mangled, the dying were writhing and shrieking under the unsatiated knife and tomahawk, and from the bodies of some ripped open, their butchers were drinking the blood, scooped up in the hollow of joined hands, and quaffed amid shouts of rage and victory. I was shaken, not only with horror, but with fear. Now, this kind of terrible and and extreme violence was very common in Pontiac's war, and it aroused a fury in the British that, uh, in turn, caused them to lose any sense of the, the norms of civilized warfare. Pontiac's war is a really good example of how savage frontier partisan warfare really was and how brutal, and uh, it would only get worse. The taking of all of these posts in the Great Lakes and Illinois country took place while Detroit was still under siege. We'll look at uh, how that siege played out and see how the flames of war spread east into the Pennsylvania backcountry in the next episode of Pontiac's War. I'd like to mention two of the the primary sources that uh, I used in this episode. There are a number of really fine books on Pontiac's War, but uh, for this particular episode I've relied most heavily on Gregory Evans Dowd's *War Under Heaven*: Pontiac and the Indian Nations, and the British Empire, and a most troublesome situation: the British military and the Pontiac Indian Uprising of 1763-1764, by Timothy J. Toddish and Todd E. Harburn. Uh, both excellent books. Um, *War Under Heaven* is, I consider it to be one of the the best works of Borderland history that I've ever read. So if you want to delve further into this history um, that's a a great book to pick up. Um, In fact, you know what I think uh, we'll do is at the uh, end of the Pontiac series I'll do a a patron giveaway of a copy of of War Under Heaven. So uh, if you want to make yourself eligible for that sign up uh, to join the uh, the fur brigade here at uh, at the patreon page which uh, the link to that is in the show notes speaking of which i'd like to to thank the frontier partisans patrons rick schwertfager dave rolson paul mcnamee matthew free live free christopher west jerry nunnally alan Godseff, uh, bob dice Chaz clifton and wade mcknight uh, really appreciate your support. Um, it is uh, the support through Patreon that allows me to purchase the research materials that go into these podcasts and also uh, to pay the hosting fees and, uh, and keep things rolling at our electronic campfire. So, the Siege of Detroit continues and the war moves east next time, and I will see you down the trail.